becomes like a fleeting memory. Whatever you grab just turns to dust. Like eye contact with a stranger straight around the corner. It's a dream that you to make real. Passing note of the songs. Is that what we're going to talk about? Okay, we're live. We're live. All right. Hey, welcome to the shores. To the shores. (laughs) Cheers. So, I think we're going to attempt. We're going to attempt something. Yeah. (laughs) About religious language. (laughs) Well, I think it's something we've said. Well, we say to each other a lot. I think it's something we both agree on. Um, But what was that we, we were talking a couple weeks ago? I think we were talking about respect. Like there are, there are things that you say that you know what they mean, but you might not be able to define them if you're asked. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was thinking about this, like we say often that there are things that are impossible to talk about without religious language. Um, so I thought maybe we could talk through that and try to Mm. say what that means Yeah, because I don't know exactly. Um, so that's a good starting point. Mm-hmm. And maybe we could start by giving some definition to you and I's relationship to religion. Okay. You can almost also say spiritual or religious language. Yeah. I, those, those sometimes have different meanings for people, but kind of in the same genre or category. Well, I think they're used interchangeably um, recently, but I don't think that they are interchangeable. I think they're different. Yeah, we always hear people say like, oh, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. And <clears throat> usually that tends to mean that somebody uh, believes in something that is an intangible, but religion seems to be more like formulaic. And that's what, that's, I feel like that's what hmm. people mean. Like, Yeah, I feel like people reject religion and, and use something like spirituality because there does seem to be things about life that need that kind of language, but they want to reject the, let's say the dogma Mm -hmm. of religious institutions Yeah, and reject what they see as, um, kind of like religion is used to dictate behavior, Mm -hmm. which is partly true. Yeah. But, I, and I totally understand that. I mean, I mm-hmm. kind of feel that way. I have a fairly negative view of the church, for example. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have any interest in being involved with that institution. Christian church. Christian church. Um, <clears throat> in part because I grew up in it. Mm-hmm. And especially like youth group culture was very much about like, you know, here's what you should and shouldn't do. And if you do the things you shouldn't do, you're bad. And if you do the things you should do, you're good. And that like intersected with, I think sort of junior high and high school, it intersected with the natural click formations of those years of adolescence, mm-hmm. um, in a way that was really a, a turnoff to yeah. me. Yeah. Wasn't it in that same, same regard? I, it's, I feel like I can see the both, both sides of that. Like I know some people who are very religious, but it's more that the religion serves them. And, and then other people who that the religion actually turns them off, you know, like, I mean, I think of Catholicism specifically, it's where you have all these icons and ceremonies and, and it seems just pointless, but some people really enjoy the icons and the, and the ceremony 
because it helps them get into a spiritual place, you know? Well, so I think that's actually one of the reasons that that is an example of what I think about, um, in part when I say you need religious language to talk about some things, Mm -hmm. you need ceremonies. Yeah. Dogma. Well, I don't know that you necessarily, I wouldn't say it's dogma. I would say it's ceremonies just like you would have the ceremony of like a family dinner. Mm -hmm. It's like, we're going to honor and respect something because honoring and respecting something is worth it. Well, I think dogma, even if you don't understand it, but I think dogma is more of where you have a certain shared language and definitions and, uh, ways of thinking and speaking about things so that you understand what they mean. And so like, I mean, I think with anything, uh, dogma is, is both a negative and a positive, positive thing, a negative thing in that it becomes lifeless and doesn't actually function to communicate anything of real value where, you know, when you, and you know, it's like when you start a company, it's like you come up with a mission statement and sort of the way we're going to talk about this and everyone kind of shares that and it, it creates a community. So everyone participates in the dogma and, and that allows a sort of community to form. Let me take a stab at a def- <clears throat> my okay. working definition for the word dogma. Yeah. I think it's like a, a, a set of claims or principles, rules, mm-hmm that are given without any substantive um, support. It's almost like that can be true, but I don't think it's necessarily true of dogma. Like the church is not dogmatic by definition. Mm -hmm. The church becomes dogmatic to the extent that it stops supporting its claims and simply makes them and, 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 requires that they be taken as truth. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't actually say anything about the truth uh, about whether or not the claims are true or false. <clears throat> it's just, you will do this, you will believe this. And if somebody asks why, mm-hmm. and there's not much of an answer there, it's just sort of a dictate that's dogmatic. Well, I would, I, I, maybe I, maybe I'm not using the right words here, but I, I kind of see it as, as a, as a double-edged sword kind of thing where, you know, you have dogma that everyone sort of agrees on. It's like, you know, we're here because we're all alcoholics or we're here because we believe, uh, Joseph Smith brought the 10 commandments or these, you know, the golden things or Jesus rose from the dead or it's so sort of like a, sort of a baseline that you establish, with, with dogma that kind of allows people to say, like, okay, yeah, I kind of know this is where I want to be. I mean, you call those precepts or, but it's like something that something that kind of frames the, the container that, uh, you know, if, if this is not what you're about, then this is probably not the container or the space that you want to be in. Like if you want to, like a Hindu believing in many gods, going to a Christian church, it's like, well, the dogma in that church doesn't, doesn't adhere to the dogma of Hinduism or something like that, you know? Hmm. But I also might be stretching the word dogma too far. (laughs) 
Well, I'm finding myself disagreeing with you, which is interesting. <laughs> well, because you know I'm right. That's why. <laughs> um, I would say a, a very simple de- example of dogma is your kids ask you why and you say, because I said so. That's a dogmatic response. I have the authority here. Your questions won't be answered. Okay. So to a certain degree, I think I agree with you in that that is a dogmatic answer. And sometimes, you know, we do as parents create sort of dogma that we, uh, orient our family. Like this is not, this is not a discussion. Well, maybe, maybe where you're trying to stretch my definition of dogma is by making a judgment about whether it's useful or not. Hmm. And I'm, I'm not making a claim currently about whether or not dogmatic dogma is useful. Okay. Or even to be desired or not desired. Okay. I'm just saying it's something, an institution. I mean, maybe my example of, because I said so isn't a good example because I think dogma really is about institutions. It's like, again, claims or rules or principles, which are given without, um, substance. And we either all just accept that they are true without question Mm -hmm. or they're handed down and it's demanded that you like the, the dogma of the current, uh, secular culture is trust the science. Mm -hmm. That's dogmatic. Yeah. It's actually Mm anti-scientific. Mm-hmm. But it's framed <clears throat> as science, and you should trust it. Hmm. And it's given without support. Yeah. You know, this is what you must believe to be a good person in the era of COVID. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I just like it. <clears throat> in, the, in the examples that you give, it seems like dogma is always a negative thing. I don't think, I don't know if it actually is <clears throat> a negative thing. Well, I think it, I think it becomes negative the longer it is in existence. So maybe it's, maybe it becomes dogma as a second iteration of something which actually is good. Mm-hmm. Um, culture. Like yeah. culture is good. There's, there's an, there's too much to learn about the world. You don't want to have to learn all of the lessons firsthand. Mm-hmm. Like you should be able to enter into this world stage as a baby, right. And grow up and not have to solve problems like uh-huh. sewage, yeah, you know, or running water. That's great. Um, but as soon as everybody well, it's, it's harder to say about a physical thing, but like you want the wisdom of the past to benefit you, mm-hmm. to give you shortcuts so you don't have to learn the lessons. Uh, but yeah. as soon as you get far enough past the lessons mm-hmm. and we just issue them as, as dogma, mm-hmm. I think that's when they become, when dogma starts to emerge. Mm-hmm. And at that point, is it good or bad? Well, it's good because it's helping you. Mm-hmm. But over time, when not enough people are in touch with, where that came from, it becomes pathologized and it's harder and harder to support. And it just becomes a, a baseless claim or command. Mm. And that's when it starts to become negative. Oh uh, yeah. I, I think that's, I think I totally follow it. Here's a, 
a definition of a, a principle or set of principles laid down by an authority is incontrovertibly true. <laughs> Incontrovertibly? Incontrovertibly true. <laughs> oh, somebody clip that. Uh, a principle or set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly Oh, man. I can't even say that. <laughs> I've only had like three sips of whiskey already. So, so. Okay, we're all going to wait. I'm not going to. You got to try it, it again. <laughs> you can say it. Incontrovertibly true. That's too good. Incontrovertibly. There you go. Oh, incontrovertibly. <laughs> Still sound weird. Uh, which yeah. is which is yeah. It's like there's a there's a certain there's a certain safety in in that. But I I think I agree. But it it's useful to a certain. Um, I mean, it's like anything in elementary school. It's sort of like here's how things are. But then as you grow further into developing your uh, academic or in- intelligence, you start to learn that it's a little more fuzzy than the you know, certainty of truth that dogma communicates. Well, and maybe this is part of the reason why you need religious language, because you can't understand everything mm-hmm. and things do get fuzzy. Mm. and you need some points of reference. But then over time, those get harder and harder to explain. And just life is like that. Like Mm -hmm. there are things that must be taken on faith. Yeah. But perhaps when they're taken on faith too long is when they, when they switch into something which is more, um, well, which is like the negative side of, of dogma. Which I think we all experience, whether we acknowledge it or not, is that we do kind of weave a, we weave a story about the world and reality around us in order to interact and have relationships. It's like we somewhat convince ourselves of a story and then we kind of learn <laughs> the truth or the <laughs> falsity of that story that we sort of weave, you know, um, and I think that is, you know, where we have like stories that are passed down generation to generation and sort of whether it's mythology or, you know, religious language or religious stories, because it's communicating a, a truth that would take like hundreds of books to communicate, but you paint a picture or, or tell a story that sort of encapsulates the idea mm-hmm. into something that's beyond just synapses firing you know like that's kind of what's what's happening in your brain but that's not going to really help you with engaging the world like you can understand how the brain works in all the multiple functions unless you're performing performing like brain surgery uh for some reason it's like it's not going to help you in a relationship uh relate to somebody or (laughs) (laughs) are you saying that brain surgeons aren't necessarily good at relationships (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, brain surgery is not going to help you. I mean, that's why you go to a psychologist and not a, right. and not a, uh, uh, a brain surgeon <clears throat> for like help. <laughs> you know, you go to a brain surgeon if something's like wrong with your brain, but that's not, it's not going to help you, um, have a relationship or the problems or stress and stuff that you have in the world. Hmm. And a psychologist is, is more about, I think it deals more in, the religious than it does anything else. How so? 
Well, as I said that, I just, I went through like three different reasons why that's not true. <laughs> Cause it all depends on like what the, what the psychologist's viewpoint is and what, how they are framing the world around you. You know, like a Jungian psychologist would frame the world in a certain way and would kind of look at, you know, probably like archetypes and, you know, hero's journey and, and maybe some of those aspects where, you know, someone who's a, uh, shit, I'm gonna get this totally wrong, but a behavioralist, you know, it's like changing your behavior will help you have a better outcome. You know, it's like, and they want to, they want to help you find ways to change that behavior, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, or, you know, it's just like, you know, then you have the philosophical, you know, free will or determinism. It's like, well, you don't really have a choice anyways. You're going to act as you're going to act hmm. whether you want to or not. So it's like, it all turns really quickly into either a philosophical, religious or, um, or animal sort of like a, which is hilarious to even say, because like we're animals telling ourselves we're animals and that's the way we act is like all these animals that we're noticing and observing and seeing. And it's like almost like we don't have any control to not act like an animal, but I don't feel like that's what we observe either. I don't think that's true. Yeah. Not either. <clears throat> I think it's helpful for, like, I think people will say something like that. We're just animals, you know, mm-hmm. as a way of absolving themselves from their own almost like supernatural ability to be generative and creative. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh, it's just, I am the way that I am. I think that's a great example of like all the language around being creative, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the muse, that story, you've told this story a few times, like, you know, the muse, that sort of, you have to, you have to grab it when it, when it shows up, you know, yeah, it's a divine, there's a, a prophetic moment. Right. Uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. It just, it seems like there's in creativity, it's easier to see that idea of the religious language or spiritual language. Hmm because it's hard to, it's like with any genius, it seems like they're, they're grabbing at something that they don't have words for. Hmm. And, you know, once they're able to grab that thing and bring it down to earth, it's like, it no longer, it no longer has the same, uh, veracity that, that, that they, that it had when they were going after it. And so it's like, you know, an artist is never satisfied because they're always going after the next thing. Maybe even entrepreneurs in that sense too. Hmm. Like, it's it's because it's like once you bring it down to earth, it's like it kind of loses its spark. It might be useful, but what else is out there? You know, how can that? How can this be different? Or as I was searching after this one thing, all of a sudden, like these other five little sparks went off. Right. And I, I heard somebody says down. <clears throat> heard somebody. Uh, they were talking about like when you have an idea. Mm-hmm. It's easy to imagine, like in the creative space, if you've tried to be creative, like an idea just sort of pops into your head. But it's true of, you know, sort of anything. Like you can ask yourself questions and yourself will answer. Like, what the hell does that mean? You know, these ideas pop in your head. These answers pop in your head. And where do they come from? And somebody said, ideas are the thoughts of God. Hmm. And that seems at least partly explanatory because it is as if they appear from nowhere. Mm-hmm ideas are like that. Like you might be sitting around minding your own business, washing the dishes or something. And all of a sudden 
somebody that you ha- hadn't thought of in 10 years pops into your head. Like, where does that come from? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and you might try to say, well, there's some specific combination of smells and motions, like embodied semantic memory that evoke the thing. Um, and I think that actually leads me to some new understanding of, I think, why people tend to want to reject religion because they look at something like the Bible and they, they judge it by whether or not it's explanatory. Hmm. And I don't think that that was ever the purpose. I don't think that's the purpose of the of religion. It isn't to explain the way things are or even the way things have been. Mm -hmm. It's like firmly in the domain of some vision of the future. It's firmly in the domain of hope. Mm. So, you know, I've always been a bit troubled by, like a critique of Christianity might be like, it's not literally true. Mm. You know, in, in the 90s, it was very, like there was sort of the young earth creationist fundamental Christians. And those people were really easy to critique because, you know, clearly the, the earth isn't only 6,000 years old, mm-hmm. you know, it's pretty obvious. So it's not, is it flat? <laughs> yeah, could be. Um, but this idea, this question of whether or not the Bible is literally true has never bugged me. Mm. Like it doesn't really seem to matter to me whether it's literally true. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a story. Mm-hmm. And like any story, like stories can be fiction and still be true. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe that's why we say something like you need religious language in certain ways because we are living a story. And that story has direction and it isn't only about what's happened in the past, which is caused like some, by some succession of cause and effect that determines the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is true in some respect, but there's something else at work and that thing at work is, is leading somewhere. Well, where is it leading? You don't know, mm. but you know something about the people that, you, that are on the stage about the characters at play you can make some predictions. Mm-hmm. You can make some ethical evaluations. And you can say, well, how do I be like the legends of the past? How did they behave? What were they pointed at? Mm. How do I not be, you know, like this other character that seems to be up to no good all the time <laughs> and things seem to just go rotten around this person all the time. What are they pointed out? What are they focused on? And you look down the road at this story and you see, where's it going? And if you evaluate that, you know, out past your own short term and out past out into your kids and then out past your kids, it's like you are in the land of religion. Hmm. You're not in the land of you're not explaining things. You're guiding things. It's like a creative thing. Hmm. Like I wonder if it has to do with like when, when our, you know, when our kids are little, we read them stories 
And it's, and a lot of those stories are to kind of help them and guide them into the future. And at some point in our lives, we tend to put these stories behind us as if they're childish. But, but then you also have these stories that are so much more complex where like, you know, a Dostoevsky or something like that, that I, th- I feel, like, feel like people don't ever move on to the more complex and, um, informative adult stories and mythologies that help us orient ourselves in the world because the world becomes more and more complex. You know, I mean, even, even see it from like Sunday school with, with little kids, it's like Moses escapes from the Egyptians and then he crosses the sea and then he, they get across and then the sea comes together and God takes care of them. Oh, yay. You know, it's like, but then as you grow older, you're like, Oh wow, this is Pharaoh's brother, like our stepbrother, or you mm. know, like whatever however you say that. Um and there's there's a little bit there's a relationship they've had for many years and they're they've been estranged for a period of forty years. You know, the the story gets more and more complex. It's not just a matter of Pharaoh's the bad guy. Like Pharaoh is actually Joseph Joseph's stepbrother or, mm. or however you wanna how you said he's adopted, I guess, technically Moses, you know. Right. The other thing about that story that's really fascinating is like in the childhood version of it, mm-hmm. it is the, the Jews were enslaved mm-hmm. and then they were set free mm-hmm. led by Moses. Mm-hmm. And I heard somebody talking about that and they said, actually, um, it never says that they were set free. Hmm. The word freedom isn't ever used. Interesting. And if you look at the story, they were slaves and then they just went into the desert like that doesn't sound like freedom to me. That doesn't even sound like an upgrade, mm-hmm. you know, they had houses and now they're just like in the desert for a generation for 40 years. And a lot of them and wanted then, to go back too. And a lot of them wanted to go back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I think, <laughs> you know, now that I'm a little bit older, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly how it goes. Mm. And I have some other like words to talk about it now too, that I'm a little bit older, like in general, when you're enslaved, like we, you don't have to be physically enslaved by another person to know what enslavement feels like. Like mm-hmm. you can be a slave to a habit. You can be a slave to, um, emotionally or, addiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be a slave to a job. Mm-hmm. You know what it feels like and what happens when you free yourself from that. Like I was, um, I was, I was remembering recently, um, so I was seeing a, a therapist as a number of years ago when I was still married and he was saying, gave me this, told me this story about how he sees couples all the time who like, for example, one of them will decide to quit smoking. Mm. They used, they both used to smoke. One of them decides to quit smoking. The other one doesn't. And he said that can often lead to the end of their relationship. Hmm. And you think, how petty, like why? And he said, because smoking's an activity. It's what you do. Hmm. You come home at the end of the night and you sit on the porch together and you smoke and that's where you have your conversations. And that's when you, where your relationship happens. That's what you do. And one person stops smoking. Now they're not doing that anymore. Hmm. You're not doing these things together. Now one person's on the porch smoking. The other person is thinking, I don't want to just sit here 
with the mosquitoes and the, you know, <laughs> everything. It's like, I'm going to go ahead and go clean the kitchen. Wouldn't that be nice? So yeah. when you're done, we don't have to do that. But now you're not spending that time together. Mm. But this is an example of like when you change something, when you, you set yourself free from something, you're setting yourself free into what? It's like a, the unknown. Mm. You move from order into chaos. What is the chaos? It's, you don't know. Yeah. It's a desert. There's nothing there. You have to make order of that, a new order. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that sounds, that seems to me like fundamentally true. You don't, you don't free yourself from an order, which you want to be freed of into a brand new perfect order, mm-hmm. you know? So like the story is very deep in that way. <clears throat> I think it's a really great point. I mean, even to kind of tie it back to our last conversation, uh, last week, uh, dying to yourself, it's like, well, if you're dying, like the question is, is who are you becoming? Mm-hmm. But there's a certain part in time frame where you, it, uh, it's all about, it's more about dying than it is about becoming. Because, you know, I think like AA is probably a good example of this is sort of, you know, you, <clears throat> you were an alcoholic and that's, that's, that's what your whole entire framework is, is about. Or like you were a Baptist and that was your community and everything like that. And you might have to die to whoever that person was, but you don't know who you're going to be. And I think that's a, I think that's a really scary, um, uh, place to be. Like, I think the desert part is that, is that idea. It's not that, cause you do see this, this part where people say, I'm not going to do this and I'm going to set my mind. I'm going to do this thing instead, you know? And it's really, they're just trading one slavery for another, right. you know, and that's, and that's not the point, you know, it's like, uh, you know, or even just one addiction for another addiction, you know, uh, it's just taking the place, but there's a certain season where you have to kind of go through that desert space where you're neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, it's a very <clears throat> uncomfortable place. And I think maybe that's the lesson is if you actually want freedom, hmm. you have to be, you have to go through that space. Hmm. Otherwise you just go from one enslavement to another Mm -hmm. and it might seem preferable to make that move Mm -hmm. at the time. And then you might think, well, shit, I just traded one terrible thing for another or one terrible thing for a worse thing. Yeah. Which you don't know at the time because it's like, it's, it's something when something's new, it seems it's, it's better or different. But then at some point you find yourself in that same place that you were a while back Mm -hmm. and whatever else it was. And uh, again, I think in Christianity, where that idea of dying to yourself—it's a continual thing. It's like you—it's like you are always becoming something new and something different, and you don't know what that is. But there's also a, there's also a certain, I think, foundation in that, and that's where you know, uh, reading Ecclesiastes right now, it's like the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Well, that's actually a proverb, but Ecclesiastes goes in that. It's like I feel like there's something in the idea and the language around fearing God, which is more of a respect or reverence is, is like, it's a, it's a place where you're, you're known and not known at the same time. It's like, I don't know. I don't understand how this world works, but then you also have this sort of, uh, certainty of place and being at the same time. It's like positional, you know, where you, where like fearing God is like, I am, I am putting myself in a position of inferiority to something greater to myself. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think it was a little bit of, 
Well, let me let me try to focus us on a new point. Mm-hmm. Like, I think a critique of the conversation you and I are having up until now could be, well, these stories help illuminate good advice. Mm. I also don't think that's what religion is. I don't yeah. think religion is about advice. Um, one of my favorite quotes is on advice is uh, the fool won't take it and the wise don't need it. Hmm. Like advice is kind of worthless. Um, <clears throat> but I think a, a, there's something deeper to this idea that you need religious language to talk about certain things. And I think it has to do with, well, I'll start by saying, I think that the idea of faith is fundamentally embedded in consciousness mm-hmm. because consciousness is the awareness of the future mm. and the awareness of the future is, is a bit terrifying because you know, what's tomorrow going to bring could be awful. It could be economic collapse. It could be, Putin presses the button on the nukes. You know, it could be, I finally get found out as an imposter at my job and get fired. It could be my spouse cheats on me. Mm-hmm. The future is terrifying because it's full of every possibility, yeah. but included in all of those possibilities. Well, so we rewind into the present. I think what you said is really true. Like, you know yourself, but you also don't know yourself. Hmm. Like, you know, there is something about you, despite the terror of the future, that you can trust. Mm-hmm. And because you can trust that, you have hope in the future. You say, and this is where you get sort of um, statements like, uh, well, the sun will come out tomorrow. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, there's always tomorrow. Um, what's that? Well, there's another one I'm thinking of. Tomorrow's not worried about you. You shouldn't be worried about it. I don't know, something like that. <laughs> but like you have some trust in what you know of yourself and, and thusly you, and because you also don't know parts of yourself, you imagine that you have the ability or the possibility of being better tomorrow than you are today. Because mm-hmm. you're growing, you're learning, you're becoming more competent. And so... Generally, people don't look at tomorrow or next week or, or five years from now and make five-year plans, let's say, about how much worse things are going to get. Mm. They generally have hopes and dreams. They say, you know, in five years, I'll finally be able to buy that house or that car or be in the relationship that I want to be in. Mm-hmm. And it seems somewhat obvious why you would imagine that other than rather than in five years, I might be homeless on the street. you know, okay. So this is a statement of faith. It would be better if things were that way than the other way. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to feebly and probably foolishly and stupidly hope to move toward that. And I think people who are admirable actually work diligently to move toward that, Mm -hmm. you know, and moving and doing that, working, hoping 
or and or moving toward it is a statement of faith. Things could be better. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think inversely, that's also a statement that there is something in the future which knows me now, which knows what I am becoming. And it's worth moving toward that. Hmm. It's beckoning me toward that. There's a version of myself in five years that I can imagine myself being that knows the, the good parts of me, that knows the parts of me that I know too, mm-hmm. and also knows the parts of me that I don't know yet. There's also a version of me in the future that I can imagine if I succumb to all my worst impulses and habits and addictions. And that person knows that path. Mm-hmm. Now it's starting to sound like I'm talking about God and the devil. Mm. And I'm only talking five years into the future. Yeah. I think if you think very seriously about these things <clears throat> and you extend them over time, it starts to sound more and more like what you're talking about is some version of God. Mm. And you could say, well, you know, you're just talking about the future. Yeah, that's true. But I also firmly believe that there's something relational about that. Like as you talk about it and as you imagine it, and as you move toward it, whatever it is, it could just be the future version of yourself. You actually have to relate to that like a person. Mm-hmm. You can't really talk about it or think about it without thinking about it relationally. So even as just a symbolic placeholder to define it as something other than yourself, that's inspiring you forward, beckoning you forward, especially if you extend it over a couple of generations and not just your own future, Mm -hmm. that starts to sound a lot like God. Well, even you and I have talked about this before is like, what's your future self saying to you now? And that's, that's kind of similar to the idea of, of, what is God saying about you? Mm-hmm. Um, because there's something that you're going outside of yourself and looking at yourself from a, a, a different perspective. Like, what would my future self tell me? You know? Um, but I think that's the part is like, uh, that's almost still too narrow. I think that's where still the idea of God kind of encapsulates that sort of like reference point. That is sort of like an ultimate reference point not just myself in five years from now or myself in 10 years from now, but what will my great, great grandkids say about me? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. and then you start pushing that out further and further into the future. It's like, you almost have <laughs> sort of God at that point, you know, saying, Hey, Michael, your life matters because, you know, 2000 years from now, you're going to have these grandkids that are in the world and you did something to mm-hmm. impact them. Right. And I, you, I think you sent me a clip on like how many, uh, how many generations back did you send that to me? I did. Yeah. yeah. Super fascinating. Like how many generations of grandparents and great grandparents we had in order to, I think it was like nine or 10 generations. Yeah. I think he went, were. he basically was saying like, so there's you and then you have two parents and mm-hmm. each of those two parents have two parents, which is four. Each of those four have two which is eight. Mm-hmm. Each of those eight have two, which is 16. And, and by power of exponents, if you go back 10 generations, it's like you get to something like 4,000 people. <laughs> there was like 4,000 people procreated 
at very similar times and their offspring got together and procreated and their offspring got together and procreated down 10 generations. And you think about the hopes and the dreams that they set forward. Hmm. And you think about the blood and the sweat and tears that they endured in their lives. All of that leading to you. Mm -hmm. All of those lineages combining together. All of those genes merging. Mistakes and triumphs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's nearly impossible to imagine 10 generations back. Mm. But if you can, like if you... You know, if you go like what a generation is generally defined as like what? 20 years. Is that all? Mm-hmm. But more or less, but basically 20 years. So it's like, I guess it's 20 you X's, 20 of X's, 20 of boomers. Okay. So let's say 200 years. Mm-hmm. So you go back to the 1820s. Mm-hmm. Like put yourself there, like whatever you know about that, you know, let's do it in Texas <laughs> since that's where we live. Uh-huh. It's like the land is desolate. You are, your, your life expectancy is probably about 35 years. Hmm. Everything that you consume, you work the land for. You risk your life daily simply to provide the things that get you to the next day. And you say to that person. You have two outfits. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's like, remember Little House on the Prairie? It's like, everybody's bathing once a week. Mm Mm-hmm. And I remember learning, I don't know how, if this is a myth or not, but it's like the dad bathes first Mm -hmm. because he's the dirty one. I don't know if that's right, but it's like, you know, imagine bathing after like, it's like one tub of water. It's not running. You don't have running water. It's like you're bathing in dirty water. Yeah. And somehow still people are having sex, you know, (laughs) (laughs) having a bunch of kids. But anyways, you know, put yourself there and somebody says to you, what do you hope? for your offspring 10 generations down the road. Mm -hmm. And you in the 1820s probably couldn't, wouldn't even know to imagine the life that you and I live now Mm. and how wonderful of an out outcome is that? Yeah. That's so true. Well, I mean, again, I think that's, I think that's something that we're grappling with in our, our, in our modern age and modern culture is that we kind of want to be done with, uh, with religion and God. And, you know, even, you know, this is such a famous, um, passage in, uh, was it the gay science by Nietzsche, you know, that God is dead. What, what should we do? And, and it's, it's not a it's, it's not a hopeful statement. It's not, it's, it's more of like, what happened? What, what, what are we going to do? Like, what are we, if God is dead, what are we going to do? And I think that's something that is, is very well, I think defined in sort of like that religious language that gives us the opportunity to somewhat ambiguity and something higher than we could ever imagine. And we're attaining to, it's sort of, uh, you got to run through there. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, can you finish your thought if I try to kill it? Yeah, you can. <laughs> so no, I think that's I think that's something that like I always try to like kind of grapple with. Like, <laughs> nice. 
is like, you know, I'm, I'm very skeptical and analytical. And that's one thing I can't get away from is that scientific language or explanation of things or how things work is not effective in moving me into the future other than sort of a temporary explanation of what we understand right now. Well, it's like <clears throat> they become better tools. Mm -hmm. Like you, it move, it helps move you into the future in that you have better tools, mm -hmm. but you can't derive, <laughs> and <is> from an <laughs> you can't derive an ought from an is. is yeah. yeah. <clears throat> it can't, they can't, science can't tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. It can only tell you what to do after you've defined what is good mm. or what is evil. I mean, it's nested within an ethic. Yeah. And where does that ethic come from? Well, it's like you were saying about the environment thing. Maybe you could say that better. It's like, do you believe that, you know, how can we live with the environment in that for human prosperity or is it better for the um, environment to, <clears throat> to win out? Yeah, um, it's a case made by Alex Epstein. I originally heard it on Robert Breedlove's podcast, maybe a year, year and a half ago. And he frames the climate change issue as being fundamentally about the answer to the question, are you pro-human flourishing or anti-environment impact? Hmm. Pro-human flourishing pro-reducing environmental impact. And it's not even that those two things are necessarily at odds, mm -hmm. but I think that, well, I don't know how this is answering your question. Well, I'll kick it back to yeah, you. Yeah. It's, it's more about the, it's more about how you, the framework you're using in order to use the tools that you have. Like I would like to like right. move into the future that there is human flourishing. And part of human flourishing is that we take care of the environment but if it's if if our highest priority is that the environment flourishes, not be impacted, not be impacted, then that really means that humans need to be basically out well, of the picture. <laughs> it's not too long. It's not very long until you make the case, yeah, that humans should go away. Yeah, because humans are impacting the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that anti-human sentiment. Well, I think we in the 20th century saw that play out a couple of times, three mm -hmm. times at least. Yeah, or at least towards different races and religions and right. you know, people groups. Right. Yeah, the frame through which you judge informs whether a tool is useful. Mm -hmm. Or the maybe it's easier to say the objective toward which you are working is necessary to decide whether or not the tool is useful. Mm -hmm. I mean, even... You, uh, I don't want to get stuck on this one, but even with COVID, it's sort of like protecting even the most vulnerable from dying. You know, what impact does that have on a greater majority of people as far as lockdowns and the economy and all that kind of stuff? Like, there's, mm -hmm. you know, again, it's like nobody wants anybody to die. That's not really the question, but, you know, it's like how you put your values in order is how it's going to, uh, how you're going to act in the world because there's something that you value over one thing over another. Like, you know, we're going to put the value of plus 55 year olds over the value of, you know, uh, our youth and 
what what they're going to be getting out of the uh, you know their education socialization mm-hmm. right uh, and again a lot of stuff we didn't really understand at the beginning anyway so, so it's I'm not really I don't want to get too stuck on that but we were making value judgments in how we are going to implement the science and in how we value one thing over another so again science is a tool but we still it's it's crouched in a value system mm-hmm and that's kind of what you're saying with the environment too. Yeah. So what is that value system? Again, it's a story that we tell ourselves, you know, right. it's like, what's the story. And I think some people have very narrow stories and, and viewpoints like where, you know, even today, you know, where we have this sort of, uh, intersectionality, you know, like it's the value of you having, you know, different, or more areas where you are, uh, not oppressed, but, um, oh shoot, I, I can't find the word. Well, nah, that just <laughs> does escape me, but I guess like, you know, oh, that word's going to drive me crazy now. <laughs> uh, well, I'm trying to find a thread back to, um, I, know, I think, I think I've caught whatever you got. Yeah. I'm running into walls. Well, okay, in my so, head. so here's a here kind of, kind of taking a step backwards. So we're talking about religious language and story and, you know, it's like you're, you, you have to have a story that you're telling yourself that's that in the story is nested values and, and are those values uh, good time, like over time? And so I think that's when we have like these religions, especially Judaism, Christianity and Islam and a, f- uh, a few others that have kind of persisted through time and have had a way of carrying forth, you know, even with, when you talk about Dawkins and the genes and memes thing, it's sort of like, we, we push our, we, you know, through reproduction, our genes move into the future, but then we also have memes that also create this sort of environment of which we are sort of educated or, um, indoctrinated into the future by our past. And religion has, I think has filled that responsibility in a lot of ways mm. to indoctrinate us into ways to move into the future that we don't have to relearn everything again. I mean, indoctrination is another one of those words that's hard to say whether it's positive or negative. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Depending on maybe how dogmatic it is, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but we need it. It's like, it was like, I mean, if, if you want to use the word indoctrination, it's like, whenever we have kids, we indoctrinate them into our f- way of doing things like the husband and wife or yeah. family. You do whether you do it consciously or not. Yeah. I mean, you have to, because it's like kids need sort of like a, like parameters in which to function in. And you indoctrinate them like, Hey, at the dinner table, we don't put our hands or our elbows on the table. It's like, why is that? It's like, cause it's good manners. It's like, does it really matter? No, but it makes them start thinking of like, okay, Hey, when I'm at the dinner table, it means something. Mm. It's not like when I'm just sitting around with my elbow on the table, reading a book. Yeah. So, so you're, you're communicating something that has meaning and that you're, that you're trying to sort of emphasize like, no, this is special right now. Right. You know, 
we're all going to sit around the table and we're going to talk or not talk, <laughs> but we're going to sit here. <laughs> well, it strikes me that <clears throat> it's not just meaningful. It's necessary. Mm. Like if, if a woman gives birth to a baby, let's say in the woods or something and just walks away, mm-hmm. that baby dies. Mm. Unlike a lot of other animals who the second they're, you know, pooped out or whatever, <laughs> like, you know, they get up and start walking. They can do their thing. Mm-hmm. They're not going to die necessarily. Mm-hmm. They might die pretty quickly, more quickly than if their parents were around. Yeah. Um, but humans are somewhat uniquely not that way. Mm-hmm. So for the, for any of us to be here, we had to be indoctrinated into some ways of being some ways of behaving yeah. and protected, protected by that, by being taught how to be. Mm-hmm. And you do see that in the animal kingdom also, because there's like, there's a lot of things where there's, you know, there's play that kind of resembles sort of, you know, fighting or protecting yourself and, and, you know, stalking your, you know, as you know, you see like cheetahs and leopards, little kids, like they stalk each other and stuff. And, but it, again, it's, it's something that, that is maybe a little bit more instinctual in some respects to certain animals than it is to humans where there's a lot more information to communicate. And we've, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that in the animal kingdom, we're the only species in which culture shapes us. Mm -hmm. But I am making a stark distinction broadly. And I'm, it's like, I'm, I don't know that field very well. So there might be exceptions, but it's Mm -hmm. like humans need to be raised. Mm -hmm. If we're not raised, we die. Yeah. And that's most, most everywhere else you look, it's not that way. Yeah. You know, fish, for example, will like lay their eggs and then they just like fuck off (laughs) and swim away. Totally. Um, so Yeah. We need to be indoctrinated. Mm-hmm. But well, it, the, there is a negative aspect to that too. Yeah. Which is maybe part of the dogma. Which I think there's something about that. We see that whoever tells the best stories, you know, has the most success too. I think, you know, if you, you know, you see this with, with companies in a sense, like, you know, they tell this really great story at the beginning and it's really hard to continue that into the future. At some point it becomes sort of like, uh, I've heard that I've been there, done that, you know, it's, and then, but, and then some other new company comes along and tells you this new convincing story that kind of creates this buy-in and mm-hmm. there's, there's a certain life cycle to, to companies and there's, there's very few that, um, can move into the future very effectively, but, but you don't see that with religion as much, you know, it's like you have Judaism that's, you know, many thousands of years old, um, uh, and Christianity, Islam that have a few thousand years on, on that, you know, or if you can, if you consider Judaism and Christianity as one, then that's many thousands also. But, Mm -hmm. um, so we also have to look at the staying power of those messages and why, why did they stay around for so long? there must be something to them where most companies, you know, after about a 30 year cycle, most, most companies sort of die out and go away because of their, their story is not, 
almost eternal in some sense, you know, has some, has, it's, it has a kind of like a <clears throat> end point to it. I mean, it, that at least is a very powerful, to me, a powerful observation about something like the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, why, why has that book mm. stuck around? You know, pre-printing press. Yeah. When people were copying it by hand. Mm-hmm. Why? Why did we build, you know, why is so much of our architecture historically, mm-hmm. like the gems of architecture are the religious buildings? Mm. And, you know, and I, I've had people make the case to me that that's just simply an expression of, of power. Mm-hmm. We're going to demand that you read, you know, we just sort of chose this book. Mm-hmm. I think that's just not how people work. You don't, you don't arrive at expressions of beauty via expressions of power. Mm-hmm. You arrive at expressions of beauty from creativity, which requires humility and through cooperation and through mutual pursuit of something you know, something, I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. You know, you could say something greater than yourself. And so it seems curious to me why, why that story has had staying power. There's something important about it. Yeah. It's like, one could argue West, that, like, it, like that story has been co-opted throughout time for the means of power, but the story itself. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the persisted dogma. throughout yeah, persisted throughout those mm-hmm. um, sort of co-opting of power, and mm-hmm. um, I don't know, but just it's just really fascinating. It's like you know, even like you think about the those those books that have lasted many thousands of years. Like the Bible is one of them. You know, Shakespeare. You know, it's like yeah. that's something that you know almost everybody knows who Shakespeare is, you know, East or West for the most part. And yet no one knows who he is. <laughs> totally. That's interesting. But I mean, what other, whatever, you know, the Quran is, you know, 1500 years or maybe a little bit less, but around there, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the Bible in its written form is probably a couple thousand, 3000, something like that. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting. Like, <clears throat> can you imagine? It's like, Bibles, the Bibles that you've seen in your life, mm. they've all been on that like super thin tissue paper. Yeah, totally. And <clears throat> it's that way because it's such a long book mm-hmm. that if you printed it on regular paper, it'd be <laughs> w- w- too unwieldy. Yeah. Right? So, pre printing press, mm-hmm. how did you make a new copy of the Bible? By hand. Yeah. Could you imagine sitting down and making a legible? like handwritten copy of the Bible, it would take you a year at least. least. Right. You should come over. How did people do that? You should go over the house. Like, uh, Oh yeah. Oh, I should show you on Sunday. Uh, my mom has collected these Bibles from like, uh, 1800s and stuff like that. They're about like five inches thick. Wow. And she got one, she's found over the like last 20 years, like she's found one for each of the kids. So we have like five of these huge books (laughs) in our house. Uh, But they're, they're printed. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, they're printed. Not handwritten. Not handwritten, yeah. no. <laughs> uh, this was a pre-Gutenberg uh, <laughs> Bible. <Yeah. laughs> but still, they're huge, and they're printed still, you know? It's like, yeah. it's crazy. <laughs> hmm. I feel like we haven't really, like, I don't think we really nailed this one. No, I don't think we did at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I feel like I'm, well, I'm... I think we tried to enter the conversation without too much preparation. Mm-hmm without enough preparation rather. Well, I think this is also hard because like a part of me is like, it's something that I know and understand, but again, it's just, it's just a little bit outside of like, I, I, I can, I understand like how story explains something so much more deeply than what we might consider facts, you know? Like, mm-hmm. Um, I think that I, I kind of take that for granted in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like fiction is such a powerful um, medium to engage. Well, in many ways, fiction is more explanatory than nonfiction, mm-hmm. which is why people read books like the Harry Potter series. Yeah. You identify with the characters and you, you see how they interact and and why, yeah. Or why the Bible is full of parables mm -hmm. stories. Yeah. It's interesting. And the stories never change too. No matter if it's, it's the basic principles of all these stories are still happening today. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if it was like 3000 years ago or, you know, 21st century, it's the essence and the fundamentals of those stories are still the same. Like we haven't outgrown <laughs> those stories, you know, Yeah, which is interesting. Hmm. It's more like we grow into them. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe we should leave it there for tonight. Yeah, I think, that, I think so. I think there's a lot more to dig into, but we'll have to put this one down for now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thanks everybody. Love you guys. Love you.